Welcome to Witch Witches Witch, a pop culture podcast about ladies who use magic. I'm Regina. And I'm Derek. And today we are talking about a pair of witches from movies that feel like they're in the 60s, but they're not. They're not. I think this is one of the few times that we both knew films to us and we both watched the film or consumed the medium. Yes, I was aware of both of these films and I had been meaning to watch them for a while. And it just so happened that they both came up in my queue around the time that we were talking about this episode. And so I was like, we, we both watched them and it was great, um, which was especially fun because one of them is not available very easily. And so we had yes. to get around some things for that. But let's dive right in. Regina, yep. why don't you tell me about the witch that you're going to talk about today? Who is your witch? I'm going to talk to you about Elaine from the 2016 film, The Love Witch. The Love Witch follows Elaine, who's moved to a new home after escaping some, quote, problems. Read, she murdered her husband. In her old town, she's strikingly beautiful and apparently charismatic. She uses magic to make men fall in love with her with disastrous results. She crafts love potions, does rituals, and generally lives a 1960s aesthetic revival life that I'm all about. Live your magic, girlfriend. The film follows her as her love spells cause murder and discord whilst she passively, well, passive other than witchcraft, floats through her life looking for the one. The film is lauded by critics for its feminist messaging and unexpected trope manipulation. For example, her love spells lead to murder not because she's trying to murder these men, but because once they feel the depth of their feelings, they go crazy or kill themselves thus implying that it's men's inability to hold space for their feelings rather than the spells themselves that are the true destructors. For me, I have to preface our conversation with the following. I loved the aesthetics. I love the concept. On paper, this movie is everything that I love, but just like Crimson Peak is everything I want on paper and visually, as a film or a piece of entertainment, I found The Love Witch to be sorely lacking. Don't let that stop you from seeing it and forming your own opinion. This is a movie written and directed by a woman, which I totally support, and even if the film wasn't for me, this was highly praised. I just found the acting to be stilted and the messaging to be way too heavy-handed, along with the fact that I think the charisma Elaine is supposed to have isn't communicated enough through the acting, more through implication. And I watch a lot of movies from this era, and... While it's right in some ways as an homage, it takes place in modern times and features modern cars and mobile phones for a kind of 60s uncanny valley for me. Yeah, and one of the things that I kept seeing brought up in reviews and that I I even noticed during the opening credits was that it's not just written and directed by the same woman. She also designed all of the costumes and edited the film herself. So there's a very deliberate aesthetic to this film, both in the pacing and the styling. And that this one auteur filmmaker kind of did everything except for the acting herself. Exactly. Yeah, this is soup to nuts, this woman's complete artistic vision. And it's pretty remarkable that one person could be involved in and execute on so much in a feature length film. It's like really pretty amazing. So regardless of whether or not it's your personal taste, it's worth it just to see the execution of this one woman show. 
basically. Now, this is a 2016 film, so it's available digitally a lot of places. Yep. As of the time of this recording, it's a Prime film on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free with your subscription. I will preface this by saying to our listeners, this film is extremely R-rated. There is full frontal nudity in the first, like, two minutes <laughs> and then throughout the rest of the film. So just a heads up on that. Uh but with that out of the way, let's dive boobies. in and talk about there's there is boobies and there is other <laughs> stuff too. There's a lot of stuff. There's we'll all the that. stuff that you may or may not want to see in a film that is about 60s style witches. Yeah. Anyway, let's dive in and talk about Elaine a little bit. So the first rule of witchiness is that the witch identify as female. Can you tell me, does Elaine identify as female? Completely and totally, yes. Definitely identifies as female and relishes in it. In fact, much of the film is an interesting visual delight of 60s femme pink aesthetic. While being a woman may not have anything to do with biology, Elaine is a cis woman, and there's an interesting scene where she creates a witch bottle that includes her own urine and a used tampon that totally confuddles the police officers who find it later. What is this thing? And that's pretty charming. Yeah, even as she's putting the witch bottle together, she does a little soliloquy about how most men have never even seen a tampon. Yeah. And so it was kind of fun that then when the police find it, they're like, well, what the hell is this? Which it's <laughs> clearly a used tampon they have no clue like the whole police department is Ladies, like what's this thing it's, it's witchcraft know. definitely because i don't understand in terms of like the 60s femme aesthetic i especially enjoyed the tea room oh my has god yes everybody is in just perfect white linen and everything is pink and white and it's just so pristine and clean and it's unsettlingly creepy in that way yeah and also the one time in the film they had a pop culture reference and it stood out to me as being so weird because they never made one elsewhere is when somebody refers to Elaine and her aesthetic as being a very Stepford image. Yeah, Stepford. And I was like, I get that as the audience, but nothing else in this film has informed me to expect pop culture references. Yeah, it, like I said, it has this weird 60s uncanny valley where it is very definitely set in modern times but everything about the film whether it's the phrasing of the actor's lines or it's the aesthetic or whatever it all says 60s except for like a handful of things that make you kind of go huh? like 90 percent of the film if you watched it out of context on its own you would think this was just the 60s 70s stuff yeah you would not be able to tell that it's modern day anyway let's dive into the second rule of witchiness which is that the witch in question practices magic can you tell me a little bit about how elaine the love witch practices magic well i didn't like the film as a whole as i mentioned i am a hundred percent a fan of all the magic elaine practices she makes the aforementioned witch bottle she makes Love potions, reads tarot, paints esoteric self-portraits, and if I remember correctly, she also uses her gaze for some magical effect. And she doses a guy at one point, right? She, she doses goes several guys. LSD, yeah. but like... Like legitimate drugs, not just like magical love potions, but she's like... Yes, I believe the police department refers to it as the devil's weed. Devil's weed. And it there's, is definitely a hallucinogenic herb of some sort that she mixes in with alcohol. There's a fun scene where her coven does a mock hand fasting that could be considered magic as well. All the shots of Elaine plying her trade as a potion mistress and doing her magic are delightful and pretty spot on for magical practice in the real world. There's a great scene where she's mixing her love potions and she's got a very 60s nouveau alchemist set up and there's a lot of dry ice and 
things bubbling in different colors. And she does a magic ritual at one point where she's lying on a rug that has a pentagram on it. And I just, I want to, I want to be her in that scene. She's like totally all in in her ritual. She's laying on this pentagram and there's candles. There's like this sweeping aerial shot of her just looking gorgeous. And yeah, I'm all about that. Yeah. The set design is pretty stunning. It's her great. apartment in particular is gorgeous so much love went into the set design and the those costumes the styling just so much love while we're on the topic of magic in the film there was one scene that i couldn't tell whether it was supposed to be magic or not because it was so ambiguous Mm. they introduced these twins star and moon yes and in the scene where they're introduced the leaders of the coven explained to them that like one of the most powerful things you can use for your spells is your sexuality yes and then later on we see them at a burlesque club and they're doing this sort of synchronized dance movement mm-hmm. and all of the men in the building are just entranced but there are two other women at the bar I think they're either servers or other dancers mm-hmm. it's just like they're not even good dancers what's going on here yes. and I couldn't tell if it was just hey look sexy ladies or if it was some sort of spell I would bank on it that they were trying to imply that it was a spell it was magic okay. magical dancing that's it, what I thought side note for magical dancing because I just saw the new Suspiria mm-hmm. and Oh my gosh, this is up there with my favorite horror movie of all time, The Witch, which we've talked about in another episode. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I will talk about Suspiria and dance magic as a theme, because it is, and not just the David Bowie dance magic dance, but like- I was about to say that's the best That's the best dance magic, you're right. This film was delightful. The choreography was amazing. The messaging was great. It was beautifully crafted. It was visually stunning. It was very scary too, but it was scary, but paired with such beautiful things. So you're like, ah, oh, but it's pretty. Ah, oh, but it's pretty. Anyway, side note, Suspiria, go watch it if you can. Excellent. All right, let's keep it moving. Third rule of witchiness is that the witch in question practice feminism. Can you tell me a little bit about how Elaine is or isn't a feminist. To the point of groaning, yes, feminist. It feels silly that my major criticism of this film is how beat you over the head messaging it is about feminism and women and women's rights. But here we are. Elaine herself is definitely a feminist. She believes in women's equality and power and uses that power in an interesting and hyper-feminine way. Read witchcraft. That said, the film stops a time or two for a monologue at the camera about being a woman, and that just doesn't do it for me. The idea that the men she casts spells on implode under the force of their own feelings because the patriarchy hadn't prepared them to feel anything is delightful and fun. Elaine is kind of lacking in emotion for me, and it made it hard to connect with her. Which, hey, maybe that's a larger stylistic choice, that all the men are overly emotional and Elaine is more reserved, who knows. There's also a bit of content warning for some flashback backstory about Elaine. She's shown having been raped by her coven leader at some point in the past, and she has to face him a couple times in the film. She doesn't seem overly upset or bothered by him or the events of her past, which in some ways is nice because she's not defined by her victimhood, but it's still tough. Is that why she's obsessed with finding love? Could be. It's hard for me to know exactly why that point of her past is relevant, other than perhaps to show that she can face her rapist without much more than a steady blink to indicate something might have upset her. There is one point towards like the middle back half of the movie where he attempts to grope her and she immediately pushes him aside. And that was kind of it. Those are really like the main interactions between the two of them. There wasn't any statement there aside from, okay, well, she still has to deal with him. Right. I definitely agree that as the movie went on, I found Elaine sort of less relatable the more I understood about 
her vision of what men and women are and yeah. how they relate to one another. Yeah. And especially because there are significantly more relatable and seemingly reasonable characters in the film. There are. So I was happy to see that by the end of the film, it, it seems as though the audience is not meant to relate to Elaine or see her as a hero or a tragic figure. She's kind of the villain mm-hmm. of the movie. Mm-hmm. And all of that is fine. But to bring it back again to feminism and why this is my major criticism, which again, it seems silly because so much of what we talk about on the show is feminism. When it comes to that kind of thing, when it comes to especially genre films have an ability to couch a message in them that other types of more straightforward dramas just can't. You know, you can kind of infuse ideas and messages in ways that people who might not be 100% ready to confront them head on can appreciate through a genre film and it can kind of very subtly start to open their minds to to new ideas, right? And so to me, when I see a film about, you know, witchcraft and it has this very exploitation, sexploitation vibe, you know, there is an opportunity there, I think, for people who might not be super feminist or super interested in feminism to get into something like this and then come out with a more feminist point of view. But when you're talking right to the camera about feminism in like such a heavy handed way, like then all of a sudden this film becomes very niche. It's, it's gotta be watched by people who already agree yeah. with the messaging, you know, because it's just going to frustrate the people who don't agree with it, right? And the film's not for yeah. them. And that's not to say that like every film about feminism has to be this like sneaky, brainwashy thing to like get everybody to be feminist or, or whatever. It's just for me, I feel like you can have a more artfully done way of getting those points across. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I feel like anybody who's seen the film will agree with you. On that. <laughs> um, but that's it's but, challenging. But again, that's yeah. not. But the, I look at all the reviews. I look at all the reviews online, and people are just like, lauding this film. It's so amazing. It's great. Messages. It's great. All the things. Everything about it is great. I just have trouble getting behind the its greatness <laughs> about it it just it feels a little like i'm missing something it reminds me of when i was in high school and mystery science theater 3000 was becoming like a big thing i remember watching it at home and my mom walking in the room and being like oh this island earth i love this movie and then realizing <laughs> that there were like puppets making fun of it she was like oh why are they making fun of the movie and i was like well that's what the show is she goes oh i thought they were just going to watch this island earth oh okay because she remembers going to the theater and seeing this like b sci-fi movie Mm -hmm. and she has fond memories sure yeah whereas future society says this is garbage let's dump on it and i'm not saying that the love witch is a bad movie i'm just saying it sure would be fun to see it on mst3k someday i'm with you on that anyway Moving on, the fourth rule of witchiness is that the witch in question come from a place of persecution or misunderstanding. Can you tell me how Elaine is persecuted or misunderstood? Yes, she definitely is persecuted, but for good reason. The first reason is murder. 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 Which she totally evades consequences for because she seduces the detective. Ah, Wiley. The more important way... She's persecuted is because Elaine totally steals her friend Trisha's man. She seduces him. She gets all kinds of naked with him, then makes him pine for her so completely that he kills himself in his tub. Her poor friend finds her husband's dead body and then meets Elaine for a sympathetic tea where Elaine, 
Miss Bench is more excited about her own new relationship that she completely ignores Trish's grief. Then Trish finds a shrine Elaine has to all her former lovers and sees, you guessed it, her husband's photo among them. There's a big struggle between the two of them that leads to the climax of the movie where Elaine, already suspected of murder, is finally investigated by detective boyfriend. The film ends when she revenge murders the detective boyfriend for not loving her enough. It's a lot of murder. And more importantly, when you've essentially committed serial murder in this town that you just moved to, maybe don't keep prizes from your last two victims on your nightstand. I totally missed this when I was watching it. But she, not only is she the villain, but she's a legit serial killer. She's absolutely a serial killer. She has a pattern. A serial killer. She takes trophies. Mm -hmm. She is what a lot of true crime people know, a lust killer. You know, like like Jerry Brudos, like she's like the lady witch version of of a Jerry Brudos, where she's like really and there's like some sexy sexy happening, and then a lot of murdering, and somehow feminism. I'm not really sure. You know the theory of how like middle aged middle American families like they they love to watch like Criminal Minds and NCIS before bedtime because it's what they call murder porn. I mean, I'm into that. Yeah. Well, this movie feels like just one step up. It's like <laughs> slightly more murder, slightly more porn. Yeah, totally. Which, again, it should be everything that I want because, like, I'm a big fan of the My Favorite Murder podcast. Mm -hmm. I like listening to people talk about murder cults and aliens and all that. I'm all in with and I like sexy things and I like witchcraft and like again on paper this is everything I want but I watched it and I was like why am I um, unhappy <laughs> not satisfied oh it was so close and yet it was so close Speaking of things that are far away, let's get to the fifth and final rule of witchiness, which is that the witch in question be bonded to a sentience larger than herself. Can you tell me, is Elaine bonded to such a sentience? I'd say probably yes, in an eclectic Wiccan kind of way. There are gods somewhere in Elaine's belief system, and by gods I mean the goddess, capital G. But it's not explored very deeply. It's more implied through the other common members you meet briefly in the film. It's a curious film that I'm sure people will be talking about for quite some time. And again, just because it was not my personal cup of tea doesn't mean that it's not worth the watch. Again, it was just so beautifully executed as far as the aesthetic and the set design and like the, all of the... Th the messaging and everything, it's all there. And and maybe it'll be excellent for you. And I missed something really important that would tie the whole thing together. And if you figure out what that thing is, you can email us at witchwitchcast at gmail.com and let me know what I missed. Yeah, I'd actually love to hear some of our readers' thoughts on this film if they are a fan, because we're, we're in no way saying that it's a bad film. Once again, I have to reinstate. Like, I enjoyed this movie. I just had a hard time with it frequently. But... Now that I've brought you down through the Love Witch and Elaine and we've murdered a lot, we've done a lot of murder, let's uh, take our eyeliner and beehive hairdos and move to sort of the, sort of the 60s again with your witch, Derek. Uh, who are you going to talk about today? So I would love to tell you about Gillian Holroyd from Bell, Book, and Candle. Yes. Now, Bell, Book, and Candle was a 1950 play by John Van Druten, 
But more famously, it is a 1958 feature film starring Kim Novak and James Stewart. Now, you might remember Novak and Stewart from another film they made in 1958 that they're probably much more famous for, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Jillian, or Gill as she's called, is a witch who lives in Greenwich Village in mid-century New York. She owns a store of African antiquities, hangs out with her wacky Aunt Queenie and lovable goof of a brother Nicky, both of whom are witches as well. She prefers to be barefoot, hangs out at a witchy nightclub downtown, and when she gets bored one Christmas decides it'll be fun for her cute neighbor to fall in love with her. Hilarity ensues. Yeah, we have another link up here. It's not only just kind of feels like the 60s in here, but also... Love spells gone wrong! Yes, definitely. The moral of the story really is don't cast spells to make people fall in love with you because it never goes the way you want. It is tricky, and I'm going to lay down some experienced witch advice for all our young witchlings listening out there. Lay it on us, Gina. Educate. Every time you think to yourself, man, now would be a great time to cast a love spell to make that cute person fall in love with me. Instead, take your candles, take your incense, and draw your pentagram, and cast that love spell on yourself. <laughs> love yourself. Because in the words of another probably witch, I'm not sure. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell you gonna love somebody else? Yes, that is wise advice. If I could cast a spell to make me feel better about myself, I'd do it. <laughs> Pretty much every day. Yeah. Well, we can talk later about that for now. Yeah. Let's talk about... That's not the topic of this podcast. Self-love is always important, but right now we're going to talk about the first law of witchiness, which is that the witch in question identifies as female. Does Gil identify as female? Yes. Gil is a confident, independent woman thriving in the hustle and bustle of mid-century Manhattan. She runs her own business. Her friends and family look up to her as a role model. And she's generally got it going on in every sense of the expression except for her love life. Yeah. And it seems... Because I also watched this and just had a great time. Oh my time. god, this movie's a ball. It's just so fun. And it seems like, from my watch of it, that the the love life piece of it is that if a witch, this is part of their rules of witchiness, if a witch falls in love, then they don't have powers anymore. Is that right? Yeah, they, they lose their witch powers. They lose basically. their witch powers. So you gotta make a trade. Fall in love or have witch powers. But you can always tell that a witch isn't in love because the two other fun rules of witchiness in this film are that witches can't blush and witches can't cry. Yes. So yes. she knows that she has fallen in love with this man when she catches herself crying. She goes, oh no, this has never happened before. This is bad. And that's when she starts to feel her powers slipping away as well. I have to say, that's another thing that I really love about this film as far as the, the plotting and the execution. I love when any genre film, but especially films or, or any story that involves magic, when they set out the rules of magic and then make sure that the plot hits all of those rules and shows you them in action, I just, it makes it feel so concrete and real and immersive to me. Yeah. It, I love a solid rule of magic. Yeah, it's a magical Chekhov's gun. You can't introduce these rules in the first act and not have them come to fruition in the third act. Right. Pew, pew. Speaking of magic, let's talk about the second rule of witchiness. Does Gil practice magic? Yeah, Gil's got all sorts of magic. She hums to her familiar, a cat named Piwacket, to get him to go out in the world and put things in motion for her. And also to cast some sort of nondescript love spell on her unsuspecting neighbor, Shep. 
She does a ritual with a potion and fire to lure an author to New York all the way from Mexico. At one point, she even casts a spell to make a book 100% unpublishable, a skill that I'm sure the two of us would like to have every now and then as we both work in publishing. Boy, howdy, would I ever. Every now and then you see a book and you're like, not only do I not want to publish this, nobody should publish this. Nobody. How did it get this far? Why is it in front of me now? Yeah. It happens from time to time. But going back to Piwacket, who is boss, Piwacket is so awesome and best supporting cat in this film. Mm-hmm. Piwacket is so fun. And the, the tune that she hums... This sort of clouding style. Did a portrait of last year. is just so enchanting and i spent the rest of the day after i watched this humming that to myself too because it's just it's catchy and it's a little spooky and it's a little sexy. And then she, this, the shot where she's doing the love spell on Shep, she's just got her head, like rest, her, like her chin resting on top of Piwacket's head and she's just gazing really intently into the camera and it's hypnotic. It's beautiful. And the the other thing that's interesting about the magic in this film is that she's a little bit of a like a conservative magic user. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to use magic for everything. No. But Qu- Queenie and Nikki are all about it, and she kind of has to tell them to calm down with all the magic use a little yeah. bit. They have a, a Christmas get together where they open presents with each other, and they talk about like, "Oh, did you get this with magic, or you know, how did you come up with this?" And yeah, they want to know like how she conjured this present for them. She goes, "I, I went to the store. And I went I to the store, <laughs> right? Exactly." Which I mean, that's another kind of magic. Here's an independent woman with an African antiquities shop doing awesome in mid-century Manhattan. I mean, yeah, in Greenwich Village, which even back then was a pricey area. Talk about magic! I mean, her upstairs neighbor is a book publisher with a baller office. Yeah, granted, book publishing nowadays isn't the most profitable world, but in the fifties, yeah, oh boy, that was that was big business. Mm -hmm. And she's his Mm -hmm. landlord, so like, how much money is she raking in with that antiquities store? Moving on to the third law of witchiness. Does Gil identify as a feminist? I would argue that yes, Gil is a feminist. Like we just said, she runs her own business like a total boss. Like a boss! And she refuses to be labeled or play by anyone else's rules. She does, on the other hand, strip other women of their power for her own satisfaction, which is not very cool. Like we were just talking about when she's worried that her aunt is drawing too much attention, she bars her from using magic anymore. When the guy she just met and thinks is cute reveals he's about to get married, she just casts a spell on him to make the guy fall for her instead, which, like... There are degrees by which that could have been handled better. To be fair, though, that was because she was feeling kind of salty about his fiance, who I think we're going to talk about in the next 
segment. Yeah, definitely. That's a major topic. But yeah, I would say, yeah, definitely feminist. And like 50s feminist, you know? So what's that? Second wave? Because Gil is not like a bra burner type, but she's definitely, well, she's Mm -mm. a shoe burner. She's a shoe burner. Yeah. Yeah. You screw those shoes. Who needs them? Who needs those heels? Nobody. They're bad for your back. Mm -hmm. They can't define who I am. And when it comes to her aunt drawing too much attention, like in some ways that makes sense, right? You don't want there to be a witch hunt in Greenwich Village. Definitely not. Especially because one of the first scenes in the movie is when Queenie gets caught breaking and entering. Yeah, come on, Queenie. She uses magic to pick some guy's lock and then like the person walks in and is like, what are you doing here? She goes, oh, I'm just a doddering old lady. I didn't realize. And he's like, the door was locked. How did you get in? She was like, I'm just a doddering old lady. Bye. Yeah, Queenie B&E is tricky. You don't want that on your record. So probably for the better that it was like, yo, tone it down with the magic, just chill. Moving on to the fourth law of witchiness, how is Gil persecuted or misunderstood? So like we just alluded to, Gil has a bit of a rivalry with Merle, Shep's fiance. You see, Gil and Merle lived in the same dorm in college, and Merle got her in trouble with the dean for always walking around barefoot. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. Merle just found it peculiar and targeted Gil for being different. Gil got back at her, though, when she noticed that Merle had intense reactions to thunderstorms. Gil cast a spell to make sure it rained constantly throughout her senior year, making the final semester impossible for Merle. Completely untraceable payback, no real harm done, just a bit of fun at the expense of someone who'd slighted her in the past. To a lesser extent, Gil is also misunderstood by both her family and by Shep. Her brother and aunt don't understand why Gil would want to renounce her witchcraft to be with a human man, and Shep doesn't really believe her when Gil tries to explain her true lineage to him. definitely. He's very willing to like follow her to the ends of the earth because he's so infatuated with her but when she says oh hey by the way i'm a witch he's like that's fine i guess if that's the game you want to play and she's like no it's not a game and he's like okay cool i got work to do whatever yeah but to be fair he has no context or even an inkling that witchcraft could be involved right i mean in some ways maybe he could have thought there was something going on because the author that she lures from Mexico to New York that we talked about earlier is writing a book about witchcraft and he's going to publish it. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, but he very clearly doesn't believe it. But the whole time Shep repeatedly says, oh, okay, you're basically writing fiction and passing it off as truth. He's like, I have no interest in this book. The only reason I'm publishing it is because your last book was a huge bestseller. And so I'm working with you, the author, because this book is going to make me a lot of money. I don't care what's Welcome in the book. to publish. This is very much book publishing. From time to time. Not all the time, but I don't want to tell tales out of school. I'm certainly not going to say anything about your office, <laughs> but I know I look around my office and I certainly see some books where I'm like, this is not a cool thing to be publishing. Yeah, it happens. It happens. But fine. So yeah, so he doesn't really have any inkling that witchcraft might be a real thing. He's not a believer. So when he, she explains it to him, I can see him being like, no, I don't, what are you talking about? When he really gets it is when she spells him not to be able to leave and he goes out to hail a taxi and comes right back inside hailing a taxi <laughs> and like scene. realizes that like, like how, how did I... How did I get here? Like that's that was really that's fun. great, and that's the other thing that I feel I need to like reinforce about this film is like 
when you think about movies prior to like the 1970s or so you tend to think about how the timing was different about how our concept of how much time something takes in a film has changed over the years and even by 2018 standards i feel like bell book and candle moves at a solid clip and you never feel like there's a lull you're always having fun there's a laugh every few minutes like it feels like a modernly paced film. So I can only imagine seeing this in 1958 and thinking, Mm -hmm. wow, this movie is zipping Mm -hmm. along. This Mm -hmm. is just going so fast. Yeah, it's very much a modern romantic comedy. Definitely. So the last law of witchiness is that the witch is bonded to a sentience larger than herself. How about Gil? So I'm not so sure about this one. We don't hear much about deities and the like, but Gil certainly shares a bond with her familiar, Piwacket, her feisty little house cat, and he is arguably a sentience smaller than herself. Though I would say, and this is another thing about how thoroughly modern and impressive the film feels, Pi does a lot of stunts throughout the film. There's a lot of focus on Pi jumping from one shelf to the next, or jumping onto somebody's shoulder, or climbing in through windows. And the whole time I was wondering, like in the 50s how did they wrangle a cat to do all of this so precisely yeah, supporting cat i feel like modern day they would have had a cat for like the sitting scenes and the rest of it would have been cgi yeah because they don't have the patience to make a cat do all that so the fact that they actually had several real cats for the sake of the film do all of this was impressive that's supporting cat so in that sense, she's bonded to several cats, which could be right. You could, herself, I suppose, but that's a that's a filmmaking flub. You could you could make a pyramid of cats and make a super cat. Absolutely, I think I saw that in an episode of Powerpuff Girls. Awesome. All right, so we've we've talked about both of our witches. We've talked about Elaine. We've talked about Gil. Let's talk about our covens for a minute. Mm-hmm. So if you could have one of these magical '60s style witches in your coven, which one would it be? Well, I feel like. I would love to borrow wardrobe and makeup tips from Elaine, but when you're talking about being in a coven, Gil, all the way. She is interesting and smart and successful and fun and has an awesome supporting cat. Definitely. definitely Yeah, I'm with you on this. If only because Elaine is 100% trouble, gotta go get it. 100% a serial murderer. (laughs) Also, she's kind of a jerk like she doesn't support her friends she doesn't listen to her friends she doesn't support their friends at all i need the support of a large group of friendly supportive witches who've got my back and maybe we like have some tea and cake yeah do you know a place where i could go and like hang out with a bunch of supportive witches and get some tea and cake i think you need to head down to the cauldron cabaret although there is a delightful nightclub in Bell Book and Candle. There is. They go to the Zodiac Club, and that place is hopping. Yeah, it was the prototype, if you will, of the Cauldron Cabaret. The OG Cauldron Cabaret. The whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, I can't believe <laughs> we waited this long to get to the Zodiac Club. Because it is the perfect template of what we envision the Cauldron Cabaret being, aside from not having as many pop culture references. Yes, definitely. There's a sweet bongo jazz band, and there's a French performance artist, and there's just old witches in the corner telling stories. Yeah, it was it was a hundred percent how we envisioned the cabaret. So Gil and uh, and Elaine walk in, and um, hopefully somebody 
does something about Elaine so that she doesn't murder anyone. Well, I feel like Elaine might swap advice and like life details and sort of sort of share her unique slant on the world with some of the villainesses. Oh, absolutely. The cabaret. I'm talking your your Maleficent. I'm talking your Ursula the Sea Witches. Mm-hmm. That type. I feel like they would tell tales. Absolutely. Maybe. Yeah, I think the practical magic ladies, you know, because they do a love potion trade, you mm-hmm. know, and their their rules of witchiness also intersect with Gil, too, as far as magic being linked to love in some way. But maybe uh, maybe Elaine would hook up with not Buffy from Simply Irresistible and uh, whip up some, some tasty magical treats. Remind me again, which Sanderson sister was Sarah Jessica Parker? Sarah. Oh, okay, that's obvious. Yes, of course. Because I feel like she would have a lot to say to Elaine and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I feel like the two of them... Total Black Widow vibes. Yeah. Yeah. They've both got a little bit of the boy crazy and a little bit of the just crazy. Yes. Boy crazy and just crazy. But both of their boy crazy and crazy are different enough that they could sort of bounce ideas off of one another and, and give some perspective. Absolutely. You know what? I see a beautiful friendship forming. That would work. Let's put them in the high security area of the Cauldron Cabaret and move on to what... Uh, uh, Gil is doing. Well, I'd also throw Maddie Pryor in. Oh, with yeah, Maddie because Pryor. Because she's got experience with enslaving men. High security area. Meanwhile, Gil, who, who are the, 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 I guess, good witches, good witches, let's say. Well, as I said, I feel like our practical magic ladies would be interested in hanging out with her. I can definitely see that. They would be friends. They would be friends. I feel like she and Lydia from Beetlejuice might have some interesting... Uh, perspectives to share. Sure, yeah, I think so. Um, they they both are also like very stylish too. So definitely, there's, there's, there could be some interesting sartorial adventures that happen there. I was just thinking that Gil and Usagi would have a lot in common with the whole my power is connected to a cat. Oh, definitely. So Pi and Luna cats. are going to hang out. Oh yes, Pi and Luna is Pi a boy. Cat? I believe she refers to Pi using male pronouns. I, I believe Pi is a male. So there's there's a possibility of kitty cat romance and then more magical kitties. Oh well, I mean, I'm I'm such a fan of this cafe even more now. <laughs> get, get some of those sweet little desserts. One of those from... Japanese cat cafes, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. where there's just like a bunch of magical cats running around. I was thinking around. once you get those desserts from Simply Irresistible and everybody just falls in love, yeah. just give those to the cats. Oh, kitty love story. you started story, a new sort of side hustle at the College and Cabaret, our, our kitty cabaret. Kitty cabaret. Oh, and uh, if anybody needs a familiar, we can adopt out all the little kitties. These custom bred familiars. <laughs> Oh no, that sounds bad now. That's horrifying. Never mind, let's not talk about that anymore. What do you think she's going to think of Bayonetta? I mean, the two of them are just such bosses. Like a boss! They share a lot of interest in historical artifacts, yeah. so I feel like the two of them would be sort of professorial yeah. in their in their discussion. Antiques. I think they would instantly recognize a similar intellect in one another. Totally. And you know what? Let's add Hermione to that conversation mm-hmm. as well. Let's bring Hermione in on that, because I feel like the three of them... History of magic. ...would just brain out on each other nonstop. Absolutely. It would be impossible to follow what they're talking about because they'd so many pages ahead of everybody else. I love it. Which nerd corner? I love it. So we've got our nerd corner, we've got our evil corner, we've got our kitty corner. High security corner. Kitty corner. Aw, kitty. That's a lot of fun to be having in the cabaret tonight. I dig it. Yeah. We did the Zodiac Club proud. I yeah. 
Well, that about wraps things up for this episode of Which Witch is Witch. Now that you've heard what we have to say, what do you think? Who would you invite into your coven? Let us know at witchwitchcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at witchwitchcast. That's W-H-I-C-H-W-I-T-C-H-C-A-S-T. Don't anger the Elder Gods. Subscribe to Witch Witch is Witch on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever pods are cast. That's right, we're on Spotify now. Ooh. Until then, remember, don't murder people. I just, I love that. <laughs> I think that should be the end. Okay. To the point. It's good advice. Don't <laughs> murder people. <laughs>